You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. something here concerning Joshua before he actually went in to um, fight uh, the Battle of Jericho. And that is this uh, strange encounter in chapter 5. And um, it's, it's actually what I would call uh, Joshua's burning bush. So now we remember that with Moses... Um, he was out there tending sheep, and um, you know God calls him out of a, a burning bush and gets his attention and and gets him uh, moving forward in bringing about the deliverance of of the the uh, Israeli people in in Egypt. Now, Joshua is like a Moses figure as well, and that is that he also has an encounter which I think begins to set the stage in, in a way that um, um, needed to happen for him to understand the nature of the battle. So in chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell, down, fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for, they, for the place that you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, um, I would suggest um, that, well, let me ask you this. What do you make of that personage, the person with the drawn sword? Who do you think it is? Cassie, what do you think? 
Christmas is from angels, but it says the commander of the Lord's army. And so I'm thinking maybe some man of the Christian service. Yeah, and I think you're you're on target there. And we don't we don't know for certain, but we do see throughout the uh, story of the Old Testament that there are what we call theophanies. A theophany is when um, Jesus appears, makes an, a manifestation or an appearance like an angel or like a man. Um, and he, he is wanting to make clear that Joshua understands that going in, so they're at the beginning of this conquest. They, they did conquer on the east side of the Jordan, but as they're coming into the promised land, they need to understand that it's God, it's, the battle is the Lord's. It's not theirs. The battle is the Lord's. It's not going to be through their strength, through not their military uh, strategy. Uh, it's not going to be um, through their strength. And we see that as a continuation of a theme throughout the Old Testament writings, that when God was was calling them to do something. When, when the people of Israel relied on themselves, they were defeated. If they trusted in God, that they experienced victory. And, and I believe that you know, the commander of the Lord's army, or we can suggest that it was a theophany of, of Jesus, that he said, whose side are you on? It's not your own. It's not that you want to get God on your side, but are you... Are you ready to see that you need to be on God's side? Are you ready to acknowledge that it is God's um, battle and not your own? Okay, I think I better go plug in. Let's see. Hang on just one second. Uh, do we have a plug in? There's my cord there. I thought we were going to get through this. We have a uh, extension cord. Thought I was going to get through. Okay. So I wanted to also just uh, have us. Uh, Take a little closer look at, if you haven't already, uh, let me see here, seen the map of the um, promised land in which they were going to take. Why am I not? There we are. Okay. 
So I'm going to step back here and uh, since it's a little smaller than what probably is helpful for you to see. <clears throat> but here is the uh, wandering in the uh, wilderness area and um, now they've come up this way and it's, it's in this area here that they fought uh, Sion and Og. Um, right up here is Jericho and Ai is right over there. So they've, they've come up to this, this point here and they've now uh, made this crossover into this area. So Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, and um, uh, Reuben have, have laid claims to land in this area. And what I found very interesting is that, because I found myself thinking, okay, can you imagine, you know, 12 kids and they're going to get an inheritance and, you know, they're going to argue, okay, no, I want to have this, I want to have that. And how, you know, when you look at the land masses, some of them, like Manasseh, has huge land mass, and then you have Benjamin that has just a little tiny sliver. And you think, how in the world did they have peace <laughs> with that division of the land as we're coming into that part? Um, but it says that uh, these portions of land were given by way of lot. In other words, um, it was God showing them what portions of land that they could have. And so um, I would assume that they, they understood that if God was giving them the land, that that's what, that was what their portion was and that they were satisfied with that. But that gives you an idea of, of uh, where they are coming in to uh, take this land. And it's all the way from up in here down into, um, down in this area um, that, that they uh, do conquer. Now, I heard one Bible scholar say that, you know, the promise was that the land would be whatever their foot tread on that whatever they stepped on and walked on would be theirs. And that they only really claimed about a tenth of what they could have. When, when God laid out what, what the boundaries were, that it was only about a tenth of what they actually uh, laid claim to. Um, so, you know, whether we can make some sort of a spiritual analogy to that about whether or not are we claiming all the promises of God uh, that God gives us? You know, when, when God gives us promises in terms of how we are to um, lay claim to his promises, we have to understand that God's promises are something that we have to apprehend, we have to take hold of. You know, they're promises, but they'll only remain promises unless we take hold of them. And, you know, that is usually through an act of faith. And uh, first of all, understanding that it is for us. Now, I'd like to um, actually move on and go back to our um, two battles because, because they're really a study in contrast. And um, we just talked about Jericho as being one that once they were given the battle plan. They went in there. The walls collapsed. They, they went in and took it. There was, there was no, um, no way that the Jericho people were able to stand against them. They were given very specific instructions on how to go about it. 
Uh, they followed it, the walls collapsed, and they took it. So then what ends up happening is that there was presumption that set in. And that is that, and we talked about that just a little bit, that they believed that they could just go ahead and, and take AI. But we found out that they were not able to do that, that they were routed, and it was because of sin, the sin of Achan. Uh, once that was corrected, then they were able to take AI without any trouble. And um, it says here that um, in uh, chapter 8, verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the men of AI in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to AI and killed those who were in, in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in it. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city, and they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. You know, what's, what's really interesting, on one hand, they were not supposed to take anything, and they did, and so therefore suffered the consequences. And then God said with Ai, they could, in fact, um, take the, the spoils of war and to keep them. But it, what it comes down to is were they obeying the word of the Lord? And I think that becomes the, the real key question because it leads us to this next uh, situation where these Canaanite peoples um, were beginning to see the dominoes fall. Um, you know, Israel comes in there, they're able to destroy these cities and they can't stand up against them. So the Gibeonites, chapter nine, it says, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country in the western foothills along the entire coast of the Great Sea as far as Lebanon, the, the kings of the Hivites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Now, <laughs> I have to give it to the Gibeonites. I mean, you know, they, they must have had some wise leaders. They, they understood that they stood no chance of, of resisting Israel. And so, you know, they um, create this ruse or this trick that we're going to dress up in old clothes and have moldy bread. And we're going to approach the Israelites and say, we're really no threat because we're from way over here. So can we just make peace here? And, and uh, um, can we just, can we all just get along? And um, the Israelites, um, okay, so it says, and we have come from a distant country and make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? 
and says, they are, Your servants have come from a very distant country because the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard your reports, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites on the eastern side. Now, what I think is a really uh, crucial statement here is look at verse 14. It says, The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not... Well, let me back up. Verse 13, And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are, and our clothes and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. So that's really the key, the key here for us to... Um, understand that seeking God's direction is always going to be the first step uh, because there are going to be situations we can't know. And Israel made the, the mistake of basically making a peace agreement with the Gibeonites who were not from a distant country, but because they had made this agreement that they, the Israelites, um, agreed because of their word that they would keep their word to not destroy them however they made them to be servants and woodcutters and so forth for Israel but the important lesson there is that it shows the importance of inquiring of God of, of finding out what God uh, says about a particular situation Then what ends up happening is there's a whole group of um, kings that they hear about what the Gibeonites um, have done, that they've made peace with Israel. And I guess they're envious from that situation. And they, they are joining together, about five different kings, joining together to attack the Gibeonites. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and and, and uh, king he had done to Jer Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, the king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lake Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites and the kings of Jerusalem, um, Hebron, uh, Jamath, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, and they moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gideon, Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp. So they basically made an alliance with the Gibeonites. And so the Gibeonites then appealed to Joshua, do not abandon your servants. Come up here and quickly and save us, help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting, fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion, and before Israel, they defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. 
Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horam, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. And they fled, um, let me get on my glasses here. And they fled before them Israel on the road down to Beth Horon and Azekah. And the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On that day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. It is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, um, I wanted to bring this up. Um, because from a scientific standpoint, um, this, is a, this is a story that is a brain stretcher, is it not? Um, and I've sometimes kind of pondered on this a little bit. And uh, um, let me see here. Let me get beyond this. Yeah, here we are. Because in the natural, this doesn't make sense. I mean, think about what needs to happen in the large sense of the word that the sun stood still for 24 hours. Now, maybe some of you know your uh, planetary system and operation maybe a little better than I, but the best I can figure that as the Earth is going around the sun, that the Earth basically stops. It's not rotating anymore for what would be like a 24-hour period. Um, and, you know, I found myself pondering on this. I think, man, wow, did God just uh, take the earth? Boop, we're just going to hold it right here, you know, based upon Joshua's prayer and his request. Um, and... Um, I found myself really pondering on this because on one hand, there's, there's a part of me that says, wow, how do I answer this? <laughs> I would be interested in hearing from you. How, how, what is your response to that? Um, do you have any, you, anything you want to throw into this discussion about how the earth, how, how the sun stopped for 24 hours? Yeah. So on one hand, scientifically, it's a, it's a, uh, you probably don't want to go to the science lab to figure it out. Because there isn't a scientific response to this. Um, and so I was just pondering on this a little bit more. I don't think I even dealt with this 
this story the last time, last number of times. Um, but I found myself thinking about this. Okay, let, let's just pause for a moment. What had to happen here was a massive miracle. I mean, more so than rock com uh, water coming out of a rock, or I shouldn't say more so because a miracle is a miracle. It's superseding the natural. You know, it's something that's happening that can't happen. But, but let's, let's just think about, let me ask you to engage your, your brains a bit, and let's think about some of the miracles that have happened already in this story. What are some of the miracles that have happened for Israel up till this point? Hannah, if you start us off. Yeah. Okay. So you have the tw the, the the ten plagues. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, you have you know the Nile turning red. You have frogs coming in there and locusts and and um, you know you you have you know, things that could not be just manufactured. So you, you have miraculous happenings. Then you, you can say, well, you have, I don't know what the number, actual number was, but I've heard up to 3 million people heading off into a desert. Can you imagine, you know, the responsibility and, and how, how do you plan for that? Especially when there wasn't much for planning. It was like, okay, can we have your gold and silver and a couple of blankets? Because we're heading out in the desert. So yeah, let's take a skin of wine and some water and some extra bed. And then you're heading out in the desert with all these people. I mean, that in itself. I've heard somebody actually try to factor what it would take to take that kind of group of people into a wilderness area and, and sustain them. I mean, it would take train loads worth of supplies. And then their clothes didn't wear out, you know. Uh, God provided food and any blue, you know, uh, quail in there so they could, they could have meat. Um, and this is, this is jumping over probably one of the biggest ones, going through the Red Sea with the, the, the Egyptian army bearing down on them. So already we're seeing that God is doing some very miraculous things all along the way. And very simply put it this way. We serve a supernatural God that does supernatural things. I mean, kind of pure and simple. A supernatural God that does supernatural things. Um, then I found myself thinking a little bit further and expanding our view a little bit. So I picked up for, for Hannah the, the Bible study in Matthew, and, and I found myself thinking about this. So in uh, Matthew chapter 12, where we had picked up, and I want to turn to that, um, there's this story. <clears throat> so um, this is Jesus speaking, and, you know, it says... This is in chapter 12, verse 38. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Now, the reason why I bring that up is for this reason. The story of Jonah is also one of those stories that, that unbelievers like to point to. It's like, oh, you can't really believe that a fish swallowed that man and he had him in the belly for three days. Jesus believed it, didn't he? Jesus quoted that story to the Pharisees, which means the Pharisees also believed it. You know, in other words, it was a story that was a given that it was true. Even though we from our contemporary vantage point would, would perhaps look at that story, ah, it might be kind of, you know, just allegory or, you know, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it isn't really true. Maybe it's one of those. But Jesus pointed to that story as a truth. And his hearers believed that it was true. Now just remember, we're, we're talking about how is it that God made the sun stand still. I'd like to give you one other um, example or something to ponder on regarding this topic of miraculous signs. The fifth word of the Bible in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. Okay? Again, we, we read through that and we kind of just pass right on into what else it's saying. But if we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, everything else just falls under that. <laughs> I mean, if everything that we see, the heavens, the earth, everything around us, is something that God spoke into existence, probably him reaching over there and just grabbing our little swirling sphere called planet Earth and just holding it still for 24 hours is not a big deal because he spoke it to be into existence in the beginning. He created the whole solar system and how it works and the seasons and everything else. That was all a part of his spoken word. For him to pause it for 24 hours is a small thing. Never thought about that. God has a pause button. <laughs> so I just want you to, to in a sense, um, put, put this in perspective because you will likely run into people who will want to call um, some of these stories into question you know, that it's a book with fables and so forth. But if you believe that God created the earth, the world, the universe and the, and the earth, then we don't have trouble understanding that everything that follows in terms of miraculous signs and miracles that happen, there's nothing that is impossible with God. And I think we can, we can see that, um, that God uh, heard uh, Joshua's prayer and responded to it in that way. Um, and I think we can accept that we don't understand it, but, but God is God. He's a supernatural God, and he does supernatural things. 
Okay. Let me, let me just uh, pause here. Does anybody have just a comment or a response or anything that you want to um, respond to at this point with what we've talked about? Observation. Yeah. Or literally so many things were getting died. Yeah. Because their cycle was messed up. And that's like I don't know, it's just so much more than just the sun. Yeah. Like Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I had never thought of that before. I just wow. Like just he he is sovereign over the universe, but he sustains it too. And that's really crazy, like the I don't know, the amount of sustaining that would have had to happen on that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I have to admit that when I've read that before, I found myself thinking, you know, I don't know how to answer that. You know, because um, it doesn't make scientific sense. It doesn't make sense from a natural standpoint. And, and that's why, you know, when I kind of made peace with the fact that we serve a supernatural God. So the laws of nature are not something that bind God. God, God set natural law, natural order into place. So nature does follow um, natural law and order because he put it into place. But he can also stand outside of that I mean, a healing is the same thing. Um, when there's a miraculous healing, it's when the natural order um, is set aside that the spirit of God or the work of God does something supernatural. You can look all the way through the book of uh, Acts and you see many, many, many examples of the natural order being set aside. I mean, um, you know, Peter in prison and they're singing and all of a sudden the clink, the chains just fall off and they walk out. You know, oh, when was the last time that happened? But that's, that's God working in the natural, in a supernatural way. So anyway, just for us to ponder that because let's not, let's not look at a story like this and have it stump us because we don't actually have to make sense of how it happened because we don't understand how it happens. You know, in the same way that, that God, God's ways are higher than our ways. You know, we'll never understand how God operates. We can see the evidences of it. We can see that it's consistent with who he is but we don't we won't have an understanding that we can logically say well this is the way that happened because god is not limited to 
a natural order. So anyway, I just thought that would be <laughs> something for us to, you know, think on a bit and um, uh, ponder because, you know, I'm sure you have heard in the same way that I have heard different people use these kinds of stories as a dismissal of the Bible of having any kind of authority. And, um, you know, that's another whole discussion about how we can look at the Bible and see that it has authority and it. The Bible is a unique uh, uh, book, stands apart from everything else that has ever been written uh, because it, it has, um, you know, if I can remember all these things, you know, it's written over about 1,500 years of time, uh, written on three continents and by about 40 different authors in three different languages, um, speaks to all the human emotions, and ha but it has one message. Is there any other book in the history of the world that could have been written over that period of time with so many different authors of different kinds of uh, a, uh, positions, whether they were kings or poets or shepherds or, um, you know, whatever they were, you know, doctors, all of them have one message that's consistent from beginning to end, and that God is a redeeming God, and that he's, he's pursuing us to save us to himself, to bring us salvation, that, that God is a redeemer. And... Um, that, that's a very unique uh, thing concerning the scripture from any other piece of literature. Okay, um, anybody else want to just add a thought or a response? Yes, Maya. I'm just like, the fear that must have come over in that situation with the sun standing still, the realization that you're, you're either fighting against the people that have God-like things that you're fighting with um, or you're fighting for the Lord that is doing this for you. And then uh, I think back to the Jebu Jebusites. Jebusites. Yeah, they had the right idea to stand on yeah. the Lord of this people because it's like, yeah, we're we going to die if we fight them. <laughs> like, the realization that the people that they're fighting were no better than they were mm -hmm. in this day and The most vulnerable of us is being taken advantage of and being looked at as not even human anymore. Mm -hmm. And then sexual immorality mm -hmm. is running rampant. And I'm thinking, oh, what if the Lord would, um, still had, like, still needed to do that to this day? It's like thinking back, like, this is a part of history you really don't want to forget. And that's kind of the whole point of not forgetting that this is what the fear of the Lord is, mm -hmm. serving him. And then I think about the question of, like, why Why do, like, we now, we, we still have all this stuff, like the Canaanites. I, I don't want to say worse or less worse. Probably just as bad. Yeah. And yet we're called to be missionaries in, um, at this time. Yeah. I, I'm asking you, like, why 
didn't um, the Lord want them to minister to these people like that back then, like Jonah? And then the answer is like, because they were like they were more likely to be corrupt. Because they didn't have, they don't have what we have now. They we have history mm-hmm, of what mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. They didn't have that history yet. They were God was making this history, making these examples, seeing um, seeing what the Lord really, really despises and what is set apart as holy and what is just. Well, and I think that, you know, what we want to continue to recognize in these stories, going back to what I talked about concerning progressive revelation, in all of these examples, God is showing something of himself. Um, Not only was that a miracle, but, you know, he's a God over nature. I mean, over the solar system, for that matter. Of course, they wouldn't have even understood the solar system. You know, they just would have thought, there's a sun going down. You know, they wouldn't have had a concept of the solar system and all what was happening there. But, but God is a God over all of nature. I, I think what we could also look at as a comparable thing from the New Testament is when Jesus wakes up, you know, in the bow of the boat, you know, and the disciples, oh, you know, how can you be sleeping? Don't you care about us? You know, and the storm has gotten really violent and, and, and um, wild. And, and the disciples, you know, they've seen miracles that Jesus would do. Now, you'd have to think, okay, surely he's not going to let us just go down the ship here. But, you know, they're frightened in the natural because of the storm. So Jesus wakes up and says, peace, be still. And then the storm settles down. Um, you could say in an in a, an additional way, when he comes walking to the disciples on the water, these are all suspensions of natural law to show that he's a God of supernatural um, nature. And so, you know, this is actually consistent from Old Testament to New Testament. But what it's also showing us is that that he's revealing to us um, by faith to understand who he is. Um, if we know we serve a God who has those kinds of uh, supernatural power, um, then maybe my situation is doable, you know. Because I think we so easily then look at ourselves or our situation or whatever, and, and, um, and we maybe find ourselves feeling like, you know, can I really trust God in this? Well, I think perhaps the first question needs to be like what the Israelites didn't do with Gibeon, and that is, have we inquired of the Lord? You know, do we inquire of the Lord about whatever situation we're in? Isn't that what he's actually calling us to? 
um, rather than presuming about who we are, or who he is, that we would seek God, we would wait on God, we would trust God, we would trust in his character and nature. We would, we would trust in that because we've seen and know what he's done in the past. That's the, the rocks out of the Jordan. What has God done in your past to give you reason to believe that he's consistent with, with what you know we see in the scripture and that he's going to be faithful to his word? And so I think as we, we look at our own situations, um, and I would imagine as we all would, if we all got our heads together here, we could probably list, you know, a dozen situations that, that um, require faith. Uh, some might seem like small things and other things might seem like large things. But in truth, everything is small to God. Isn't that right? I mean... There's no situation that we can ever face that is a challenge to God. And so um, what we have to do in our own walk is uh, why Joshua continued to bring them back to the Torah, why he continued to say, you know, um, meditate on this word day and night. Um, because as we meditate on the word of God day and night, we will be able to be courageous and very, very brave as he continued to call the Israelites to be strong and very courageous. Well, we can be that when we know what God's word is, when we know what it is to us, what, what his word is to us. And so it does require us to know God's word because that shows his character and nature. So... Hopefully, um, next time somebody asks you about that, that uh, story that you will have, um, you know, a good response to. I think it's also worth just also noting in that story about uh, the um, Amorite kings that fought against Israel and Gibeon. How were, how were they killed? What do you remember of that? I mean, how did the battle go? wasn't just with the sword. What else happened? Oh, hailstones. hailstones, yes. So <laughs> it says more were killed by the hail than by the sword itself. Now I have to wonder, I mean, again, we can only speculate, but were they off by themselves and they got hailed on? Or did the hail only fall on, on the Amorite kings? And Israel was right there, but, you know, they didn't get hit with the hailstones. I don't know. You know, I don't know how that would have been. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it does seem to show that, again, God was working in a supernatural way to accomplish his purpose in, in destroying uh, these Amorite kings who had conspired against Israel. Um, Okay, I think I'm going to um, let the division of the land go for right now. Um, and I would like to see whether we can pick up on a couple of other, other things.
I think the thing that I would like to have you um, ponder on and give give thought to, and I know you guys don't have lots and lots of time with, with homework and everything, but to me it's very important that you spend time reflecting upon um, how God has intervened in your life up to this point. Um, and so I want to highlight this word remember. Um, because I know if you, like me, probably do not uh, many times ponder on the things that, or think about or remember the things that God has done. And um, I, I think that we so easily can move on or move on from one thing to another and not um, really remember. I, I want to tell you about one other example, which would be a, uh, I guess you might say a Jordan River rock for me. Um, because, because it was so, um, so clear that God intervened. So let me just say that there, we were as a family coming back from Pennsylvania. We'd spent a week up there with friends and we were, it was on a Sunday and uh, we were just kind of anxious to get home. And if we kept going, we could probably get home by around six o'clock, you know, not be too late. And, um, you know, so there was a part of us that was just like, oh, let's just get home, you know. We were, we were coming down into DC and going around the Beltway, around the, the west, west side, 495. And um, the Lord put on my heart a person, uh, actually, he was actually in our DTS. A uh, single guy that um, lived alone, and um, we had begun to spend some time with him and, and do some things with him. And um, I found myself thinking, okay, Dan, how about if we stop and we just call up and see maybe whether we could have coffee alongside the way. Because I was not sure where he was or where we needed to try to, uh, you know, meet with him. And when I finally got him on the phone, uh, he said, oh, yeah, that's where you are? Well, just pull off on such and such of an exit. Well, that was only like about three or four miles ahead of us, and we were cruising around the Beltway. So, you know, a few minutes later, we pull off on this exit. And we follow it back, and we come to this Kroger parking lot. And he's standing there and a smile on his face and everything. And, and what we had found out was that uh, his, his mother was very, very ill. And um, he had been spending time at the hospital with her. Um, in fact, you know, she was, yeah, really declining. Um, but our intention was just to, was just to stop and... Uh, share together, and um, have coffee, catch up with him a little bit. And while we're, while we're standing there in the parking lot talking, he gets a phone call. Well, it's the hospital, and his mother just passed away. And it's like, wow. Um, and it's like, uh, can we go with you to the hospital? Because, you know, there was some estrangement with his father, 
uh, some estrangement with his brother who was local there to DC. His other brother was off in the Middle East someplace. And so he said, um, you know, can we go with you to the hospital? And he said, yeah, sure. So we followed him over to the hospital and um, went into the room with him. And we had a time of prayer with him um, over his mother. And of course, this was really, really a difficult thing because he was like almost truly alone. And um, after we, we did that and then the hospital staff needed to take care of things and move her out, uh, we went out for dinner and everything. We spent time fellowshipping and so forth at a, at a place of his choosing. But I found myself pondering this a lot from that point on. And that is, God cared about him. Um, it seemed like such a coincidence that we were coming around D.C. at that point in time. And that we were right, you know, had we been 15 miles on down the road, I don't know that we'd have turned around and gone, gone back. But all we had to do was just pull off and we met one another. And it was just at the time when his mother passed away or he got the word for it. So I found myself thinking about this in a number of different ways. One is that I sense that God was saying something about give him a call. Um, it could have been easily something that I would have said, ah, oh, let's get home, you know, we can call him tomorrow or whatever. And that may be what would have been the natural response. Um, but as I shared it with Deanne, we felt like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Um, and it, it, so it, it kind of pulled together a number of things as we discern God's way and his leading and, and guiding us. And that is, first of all, we have to be able to hear his voice, don't we? We, we have to be able to recognize the voice of God. Then we have to have obedience to respond to it. Because <laughs> at any number of ways, you know, I could have blown it off or I, you know, somebody, you know, Dan goes, no, let's get home or whatever, you know. So there's so many things that could have waylaid that. And then what it also told me is that God cared about him. I'm purposely just not mentioning his name. Um, God cared about him so much so that he orchestrated <laughs> us coming from a week away, coming down through there, that all these things fit together so that we could be with him at this very important time. And, you know, it, it really humbled me to think that God used us to bring him um, peace and comfort. But it also told me that, that God cares about those kinds of things in our life, in his life. And I, I would just want to, um, I think probably most of us would be able to point to situations which we know we've blown it or we missed it. Isn't that right? I mean, have you been in a situation where, you know, you felt like you should do something and yeah, you just didn't. And then, then you kind of see in hindsight that you've missed an opportunity that either God used somebody else or maybe something else happened that was not you know, good that God actually was trying to get your attention. And I, I think that um, 
are, are parallel to what we're talking about here is we can read through a history of Israel like this. Well, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. But all during that time, they're having to discern God's way as well. They're needing to hear God's voice, obey it, and, or sometimes they don't. And then to learn what, what was wrong. And I think that what we can do is we look back at the story of Israel and they're wandering in the wilderness and, and the, the, you know, evil things or the wrong thing. Let me say it differently. The, the things that um, befell them that was very hard, hard tests where they failed are the very same kinds of things that we can also fall short of as well. And I think we don't want to divorce ourselves too much from being like the Israelites, okay? Um, I think it's sometimes easy to look at their, their story and say, man, they were, they were dim. You know, don't they ever learn? You know, and I think we can tend to have that kind of an attitude when I think maybe if we look at our own life, we can see that we struggle with the same things. And... Um, I want to encourage you in this um, time we're going through the history of Israel that we make the application of what they're, what they're going through to our own life and how can, how can we become people of faith who apply the book of the law to our lives and that it be transformative to us. Um, and I think that that is something that uh, we need, it will be a daily walk, will it not? Um, so let me ask, um, does anybody have a story you want to tell of your own? A Jordan River rock. I know there's some are out there. Yeah, please do. Lamentation. Great is his faithfulness. The faithfulness of the Lord in the middle of all this stuff. And I was like sitting there, like awestruck. So I was like, oh, He gets me. Mm -hmm. Oh. And it was like, I don't know, it was really, and so I would constantly go back to this passage because we often have this in um, out of context. Mm -hmm. But it's in the context of the weekend. And so mm -hmm. for me,
And Lamentations is, you know, beginning this later, but is written at a very dark time in Israel's history. I mean, a very dark time. I mean, you could almost say it's the kind of like uh, impending Ukrainian crisis. I mean, you know, where they're just utterly devastated. And um, yeah, then to have that kind of a statement of uh, the faithfulness of God um, is, is a good um, a reminder. Um, anybody else has something before we maybe do a, yes, Cassie. <laughs> That's another story, isn't it? <laughs> but um, so growing up, my mom was like the only Christian in our family, really. So she's the only walking Christian, as we call it. Um, and so she had this this like stone angel, and it had scripture all over it. But the one that was the biggest was trust in the Lord um, with all your heart. Um, don't lean on your own understanding, but in Him. Um, and so. I, that was kind of like one of those um, Bible verses, you know, you know, one of those, like, scriptures, it's in the Bible, it's great, it's cool. And um, during that six months, God kept pressing on to it and pressing on to it and asked me, I felt like I was supposed to, like, read Psalms. I was like, no, that's, I don't have time. I am mm-hmm. busy doing all stuff. So um, eventually I did, and I actually was able to incorporate it with my day-to-day schedule by teaching the girls the things. Um, and after I started reading that every day, we were reading the verse. We read all of Psalms to highlight that specific portion. And, um, well, Psalms and Proverbs, both of them. And um, when I started reading that out loud to the, to the children that I was watching, life just got so much easier. Like, it was like a weight was lifted off. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure I said it was Psalms. I meant Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. And so, well, we read both Psalms and Proverbs. And so every day we would read that and then read another verse. And the, like, the oppressive weight just began to start lifting off because I had suffered from depression for many, many years. And so it's like one of my verses that I'm like, that's, I'm going to hold on to that because it was the beginning of God showing me that I could actually see and feel his faithfulness. That's cool.
heard the story afterwards, so um, maybe I was. Uh, <laughs> or when I, I think when I got through um, alive um, and you know got to my destination, um, eventually reaching town and the road and you know connecting with um, the guy that I did and getting to pray for his family and actually met an atheist that morning. That was how I got unlost in the morning. I was about half a mile off the trail. I knew I was going to have to head back up the mountain. It was too steep. I knew that like I was on the wrong track and I was going to have to go back. So I wasn't looking forward to. Fifteen seconds after I pray, I hear a voice. And this is the way walk in it. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's her. That's her. <laughs> There's this little lost lamb out there that uh, we're supposed I'm to find. You, I'm <laughs> you, it, you don't understand how you can be tracked yeah. the same direction as somebody for months and never meet. And be within a couple hundred feet of each other many times and you'd never know it. So the odds that they would just randomly be there. All that to say, um, yeah, when I finally got out, I look back at that whole night and how hard it was for me and how afraid I was. And at the same time, how in some ways God made it very clear in your life you really don't, you know, it's like you have a choice but the obvious one is just following me and trusting me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it very clear tonight that you can trust me. Mm -hmm. And so maybe maybe ultimately of all those, because I have about a dozen of these kinds of stories and there are more where the principal lesson is this, do you trust God with your life? Mm -hmm. is, is your life You're asking the wrong question. What what I want to know is, are you for the Lord? Yeah. Are you against and so in your life? Are you joining the work that He has for you? Or did you come up with a plan that something yeah. he's gonna bless? Yeah. And so it's a perspective, but it's also kind of the origination of your call. Like he's inviting you into a great adventure. And is he the one in the lead? And I've, I've heard um, on several occasions uh, some of your testimonies from uh, tales from the trail <laughs> um, that are some really great stories of what we're actually talking about. Um, you know, the lady that needed water or whatever. Um, and it's really important for us to you know, journal those things or hang on to them or um, keep those stories close to us because those are evidences of God's love and grace at work in our life. And he's not a respecter of person, you know. He, he loves you and has grace for you as much as the next person. And sometimes it feels like we 
you know, when, when God was, you know, handing out the bowl full of uh, grace and love that maybe his elbow got jostled and we didn't get as much as somebody else. God is not a respecter of persons and he loves and wants to lavish us with his presence, with his goodness, because that's who he is. That's, that's who he is by nature. And that's what I think that, that hopefully as we're going through this story that we can not only understand it as, as a history, but we can see our, our place in that, that God is still at work in each one of our lives as well. And I just want to encourage you, um, let me just see by a show of hands, does everybody have like a scripture verse or two that's kind of like your verse, you know, it's, you know, outlined in neon and, and uh, you know, it's one that you'd go back to. Can, can we see, you know, do, do you have verses that, okay. If you don't have one yet, he has one for you, okay. <laughs> um, because God's truth is, is truth for all of us. And um, I think what we want to do is we want to ask him for things that, uh, to me, it's like this. If you're in a boat or, you know, coming into shore, you're following kind of a pathway where the deep channel is. And God gives us these scriptures to show us the way to safety, things that where he has spoken to us out of his word. And um, I just want to encourage you to take notice of those things, meditate on them, uh, let him speak to you out of those because they will become verses that will <coughs> propel you through times of doubt and darkness and, and as they say, the, the dark night of the soul. You know, about all of us go through the dark night of the soul at different times. And we need to have, you know, the light of God um, shining the truth of his word into our lives. Well, let's, let's uh, just uh, bow together in prayer and we'll conclude for today. Father, for many of us, these stories are um, ones we've heard many, many times and we can easily um, lose perspective or overlook the, the truth and the impact of your word to us. And Lord, most of all, we want to recognize that you're still at work. You're still at work in each one of our lives. You're still at work in bringing transformation. And Father, where, where we maybe have become um, apathetic, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus in each one of our lives. Well, Lord, I pray that you would highlight um, your love and your grace at work in each one of our lives as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.